I think I mentioned to you, maybe in the past, a quotation from C.S. Lewis about the way people react to like discussions of demons and the, the devil. And he, and he says that some people are superstitious when it comes to demonic things. They, maybe this is a good time to talk about this, though I didn't plan it this way with tomorrow being Halloween. Uh, that uh, there's, there, there are some folks who seem to be obsessed with you know, demons and Satan, and it's like this uh, unhealthy obsession with darkness and stuff that's going on in the unseen realm. And then he, and then he says some people are substitious, not superstitious, but substitious, in that they tend to like underbelieve, not believe at all perhaps, that there's something beyond the physical, you know? And I think probably in our world today, in our increasingly secular world, we talk about this some quite a bit here, that in our, and as our world becomes increasingly secular, you know, there's, there's more of a tendency, I think, in, in our context in America for people to be substitious. And I'll talk about that a little bit today as we, um, as we go through this text. I hope you'll join me in Mark 5. Um, it's also in Matthew 8. It's uh, found in the Gospel of Luke, but we're going to use Mark, Mark's version of this story. And, you know, I think it's pretty interesting that you may know, you know, Mark has only 16 chapters, Matthew is 28, you know, Luke has 24, John is 21. Uh, Mark's the shortest of all of them, obviously. He's the, most, he's the most pithy writer. He gets to the point, he uses the word, the adverb, immediately, all over the place. He's like, let's get it done. Let's just get this story told. He's, he's, he's a man of few words. And so it's interesting Given that we know that about Mark, that he is to the point, he includes 20 verses about this story. It's just weird for Mark to do this. Matthew's version is briefer. Luke's version is briefer. Mark, of all people, of all people, if you're going to pick somebody, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, to give a, a detailed version of something, you're not going to pick Mark because he doesn't do that, but he does here. So that's something I want to think about. I want to like, at least consider the possibility... Man, Mark wants us to see something here. The gospel writer wants us to pay attention to this, that this story carries with it some meaning that we need to, we need to hear. Now, Matt already read most of this. I asked him to read verses 1 through 13, and the story actually goes on to verse 20 when it concludes. But, you know, it's a pretty basic story, I guess. I don't know where you are this morning in your belief about demons. I know that uh, we have a, a good crowd here this morning. We may have who knows how many joining us online either now or maybe watching this later. And it may very well be that you don't believe in demons. You, know, you don't believe in Satan. You don't believe in a supernatural realm. You're just kind of here to see what these Christian folks are like, you know. You, maybe you're curious about Christianity. And maybe, to be honest, maybe you've seen some stuff out there and you're like, I don't know how that could be explained just through natural causes. And you're curious if something else is going on. You know, up front, just, just to be up front, I believe that there's something more than what we experience here. I believe that there is a, an unseen realm. And I believe that's part of the package of believing in God. That, that if we believe in God, we also believe, because God tells us through Scripture, that there's stuff going on in the unseen world. I don't think we ought to be superstitious that we ought to attribute everything that we don't understand to the work of Satan himself or whatever. But neither do I, and I think this is more of our temptation, neither do I think that we ought to underemphasize the fact that there's real evil in the world. That, that's the word for it. It's not just people being people. It's, it's not just, it doesn't have just natural physiological or psychological 
causes alone, but rather there's something there that is, I don't know, there's not a better word for it than evil. In fact, that's where I want us to start this morning as we kind of walk through this story together and thinking about it. I mean, you get the, you get the gist of the story, right? Jesus goes into this area, I talked about it earlier, Gerizim, probably on the southeast shore off of the Sea of Galilee. This is just a quick thing here. Jesus spent most of his time in uh, the area of the world where the Israelite people lived, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? They were Jewish people. They followed the law of Moses. So he spent most of his time there. But there were moments where he left that area, and this is one of those times. He went on the southeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee to this area. It's got, not sure what the right word is, the Gerizines or, or the Gergesines or something like that. So here he goes, and he encounters this man who's possessed of a demon, or more than one demon. Notice a couple of things here at the beginning of our story. Steps out of the boat, immediately, there's Mark's word, he loves that word, immediately. Immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. Just, I want you to notice the kind of superlative language that Mark uses here. He says, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he rinsed the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Um, Luke wants it to be clear here that he's talking about this demon-possessed man. And it was a situation where the power was incredible. It was supernatural. It was unbelievable. No one could bind him. Not even with a chain. And then he says it again in verse 4. No one had the strength to subdue him. Again, I go back to Mark's pithy nature. When Mark says something more than once, it's because Mark wants us to pay attention. Because Mark doesn't say things more than once. Mark uses few words. And so when he uses some words more than once, I want to pay attention to that and say, okay, Mark, I see what you're doing here. You want us to know, particularly, that there's some power here. Now, I want to do some reflections here for you and me about the world that we live in. The demonic possession here uh, in this man, and, and it, was, it happened throughout the world at that time, there's something here that I think we need to hear. Now, I want to kind of avoid the topic of demon possession today and, and all that. I, I believe that we don't know everything that's going on in the unseen realm, but we know that in Scripture, in the time of Jesus, I believe that Jesus wanted to show the world that He had power over sickness, over life and death, over the human body, over the, over the uh, elements of nature. He calmed storms and so on. And He also wanted to show the world that whatever you can't see, the unseen realm, the good versus evil, the, the, the battles that are going on behind the scenes, he's in control there too. I believe it was a temporary thing where God allowed people to be possessed by demons in a supernatural way in order for Jesus to demonstrate his power over the unseen world. But having said that, I think we need to read something here about the presence of evil. I don't know where you, where, what you think about evil. I think for most people in a Sunday morning church audience like this, you believe in evil. 
But I want to talk about it just for a minute and use this as an illustration of what I think is going on in the world today and kind of a, kind of a trend that you see. Now, when you look at the world today, everybody in here would admit we got a lot of problems, right? We've got problems. Uh, you turn on the news, you scroll through your news feed on your computer, or however you access the news today, and it's filled with bad stuff. I mean, there's, there's bad stuff going on. Sid prayed about, it gets into our homes through the internet, it's, it's everywhere. It is pervasive, right? You believe in that. We see violence, we see uh, sexual crimes, we see uh, evil, jealousy, I mean, we see just stuff going on, stuff going on in Europe now, stuff going on in the Middle East, stuff going on close to home in our own country. We see life being devalued. We see marginalization of people because of the color of their skin or because of socioeconomic things or because of gender or whatever. So we see bad stuff going on. What is the cause of that? Can I ask you that? Just think about it for a minute. What is the cause of that? What is the cause of your or my being selfish? What's the cause of that? What's the root cause of that? What is the cause of violence? Politics aside, what is the cause of one nation invading another? Is there some, is there some deep root cause of the difficult things that we see around us today? Now, let me answer that as a secular person for a minute. The problem with us as individuals can be attributed to one of three things. Here's the way we typically approach it as, as secular people. There are psychological causes to things, right? And by the way, I'm not, I'm not going to get to the end of this and say, I, I want to I throw all that, you know, to the side. That, that you know, we got spiritual stuff, and that's the only thing that matters, and psychological stuff, physiological stuff, that doesn't matter. I'm not going there. What, what, what I want you to, to recognize for now is that the secular world wants to attribute all bad things to some sort of cause that, that keeps spiritual things out of it. So as a secular person, I would say to you, the reason we have things like selfishness and violence is that it could be a psychological thing. It could go back to our upbringing, family of origin issues, that my father was absent, my mother was absent, my, my parents were distant, they were not available to me emotionally. I was abused physically or sexually or psychologically. And so it created this thing in me that I have not been able to get over. And so we've got this problem here, and its root cause is psychological, right? That's one explanation. I wasn't loved properly. And we deal with that maybe through therapy, maybe through counseling, it's the second possibility. Some of the stuff going on in the world, it has, um, it has you'd call this a sociological approach. It has, it has social causes. So we have things that are going on in the world today because of unjust social systems. There are political systems that are set up. There are societies that are set up, and they're set up in an unjust way. The power over the, over the weak, the rich over the poor, and so on. How do we deal with that? This is always in our discussions when we're talking about um, political solutions. We do it through education. We need to fund better education. We do it through getting people in positions of power who can enact um, just social policy and programs, right? We can fix this. We get more money. We get more education. We create the programs. We do this, and that's going to fix these social ills. You see what I'm getting at? You all with me? So psychological stuff sociological stuff, it's these systems that our world has set up, you know. 
And then a third thing, a third cause is it might be physiological. And so it could be, it could be something in the fact that uh, it's a product of evolutionary biology and uh, natural selection. And so this is the way we have evolved over millions of years. We are, by the nature of the thing, we are selfish beings the promulgation of the species, right? And so there's this physiological explanation. And so we might treat that through chemicals, through drugs. We've got a physical, physiological thing we need to deal with it physiologically. So, three things here. We've got all this stuff going on in the world. What's the answer to this? If we're purely secular people, we're going to say it's some combination of these, maybe one more than the other, but it might be psychological, it might be social, it might be physiological. Those are the three explanations for the presence of what some people might call evil, uh, but, but, but bad stuff that's going on in the world. What I want to suggest to you is that one of the main things that we get from this story is that the demon had, had, had given this, this man this, this power and that the presence of evil here is meant to communicate to us that there is this presence, this thing that's out there that cannot be explained or dealt with just by paying attention to psychological, sociological, or physiological causes. There's something more than that. And here's... Here's one thing that's going on in the world now. And maybe this is a good, I hope this is a good thing. It's been this way for about 150 years or so. Uh, You just look back, about 150 years, um, God was gradually, and then it seems like fairly, fairly suddenly and quickly, just pushed out of the discussion. About 150 or so years ago. And we started dealing with societal ills and individual ills by a psychological, social, physiological approach, because that's all we are. That's all we are. Now, let me ask you something. Has the world become a better place in the last 150 years? See, I I think one thing that happened in the 20th century when there was a mentality that because of advances we were making in the understanding of the human body, the understanding of the human brain, psychologically and neurologically, and our understanding of, of the world and the way the world works and our creation of, of just and fair social systems that the 20th century was going to be awesome. And then we fought wars where more people died in the 20th century than in any century prior to this. I mean, we were killing people. We were committing genocide. It was awful. It was an awful century in World War I and World War II and the Korean War and Vietnam War and other wars that we weren't connected to. See, there's a, there's a mentality, I think, that's starting to creep in even among secular people that they recognize we're not fixing the problems. And maybe there's an opportunity for us to step into the conversation and to say something like this. You're not fixing the problems and the world is not getting better and there's not less violence and and less, um, less of the bad stuff because there's something more than what you know. There's something more than psychological and social and physiological. There's also spiritual. There's also something that we struggle to find a better word for it than this. It is evil. It is evil. It is innately and inherently bad. It is objectively wrong. There was this 
book written back, I don't know, several years ago, I think, by Andrew Del Banco. And he wrote a book called The Death of Satan. Now, by the way, he is a, was a secular liberal person. He's not a fundamentalist, all right? But he's writing a book called The Death of Satan, and he was interviewed. And they were curious as to why someone like you, someone who's a secular liberal person, by your own definition, why would you write a book like this? And he said, and he goes back and he tells a little bit of his story, but he says, I am the grandchild of Eastern European Jews. People in my family went through the Holocaust. Some of my relatives died in the Holocaust. If you get rid of the idea of the transcendent, if you say when it comes right down to it, evil is only the result of a sort of human frailties, human mistakes, and human problems, we have a problem. So the secular liberal person is saying it is a bad thing for Satan to die, whether or not he actually believed in Satan. He said it's bad for society, for society to stop believing in Satan, for society to say there is no evil. Why? Because we look around us and we see the stuff that's happening and we try to come up with some sort of an explanation other than the presence of evil and our solutions are therefore going to fall short. So the story here with Jesus and the demon-possessed man teaches us, it, it, it suggests something. Jesus teaches us something about evil. That there is real evil in the world. And maybe I'm, you know, preaching to the choir a little bit this morning because you probably already believe in this. But I'm also speaking to our young people who are growing up in a world where we don't really have a category of evil anymore. Now, I want to go back and make sure I'm not misunderstood about psychological or social or physiological. I'm not suggesting that those aren't real things. I'm not suggesting that we avoid counseling or therapy. I'm not su suggesting that we avoid the treatment of medicine and so on. Only that if we stop with the psychological, the therapy, and we divorce that from any kind of a spiritual cause as well, then we're stopping short of where God would have us. If we, if we treat things, if we think that we can fix this world by getting people, the right people in power, what's election coming up here pretty soon, right? And so people were talking about it, and the, and the ads are running, and we're, we're, we're receiving all this pressure. I will fix this. I'm sorry, I don't believe that. I don't believe it. Because the true fix is going to be found when people are reconciled to God, and God works in people's hearts to bring about good and to root out evil. This good and evil categories need to be acknowledged in order for us to fix what's going on in the world. Here's a second thing I want you to notice about evil from our story, and that is that it suggests that, it suggests that evil, it both gives and takes. Notice what it says here about this man. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Uh, he had often been bound with shackles. We, we read this earlier. Shackles and chains, but he rinsed the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. He's got this supernatural power, you know? And, and it's increasing. You'll, one thing, I, I don't think I noticed this until I read this uh, this time, but in verse 3 it says, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. There's a suggestion that he's got this supernatural power through the presence of evil, and it's increasing. So he once had been able to be bound with a chain, but no longer, because the power is increasing in him. So I want you to notice here that evil, 
it, it delivers something. It gives something. It brings about a, what you might consider to be a good thing. It brings about strength. So it's giving with one hand and it's taking away with the other. And so it's giving him this strength but also, this man is living in misery, right? He's crying out, verse 5, and he's cutting himself with stones. So evil, the presence of, de- of, this, uh, of these demons in this man were giving him something, and they were taking something away from him. That's, way, that's the way evil always works. Let me give an example of this. <clears throat> that thing that you're pursuing, that becomes your identity, the thing that you're chasing, the thing that you want more than anything else, that, if it's not Christ, is an evil thing. It can be a good thing, but it can become an evil thing because of your pursuit of it and because it becomes your identity, that thing that you think will give you what you're searching for. If that thing, if that thing, whatever it is, may be a good thing, it becomes an evil thing when it's not Christ, right? And so when you pursue that thing, it will give you something. That's why it's tempting. I don't know what it, what it might be. It might be success. It might be the respect of your peers. It might be influence over others. It might be power. It might be status. It might be physical possessions. It can be a lot of, a lot of things. And when you pursue that thing, it will give you something. It will give you a sense of accomplishment. It will give you some sense of status. You'll, you'll taste a little bit of the fruit of, of your success. But with the other hand, what it's doing is it's taking away from who you were created to be. That's what evil does. That's what it always does. That's what makes it tempting. I will give you success. I will give you ability. I'll give you what you want, and then I will enslave you. We can see this in other people's lives. (coughs) This guy over here, he's made an idol of that thing. I can see it in his life. I can see it in her life. This guy has become a slave to the thing he's pursuing. I can see that. It's a little bit more difficult to see it in my own life. It's the way humanity works. It's kind of human nature. And yet, that's the way evil always works. That thing that becomes your identity, that you're chasing, pursuing, that's going to make me whole. That's going to make me feel what, the way I want to feel. It's going to make me happy, content, whatever the word is. And Satan will actually, evil will actually deliver on part of the promise here. It'll actually give you something. But with his other hand, he's running your life. And sometimes you can't even see it. Here's the third thing. I want to talk, before we run out of time, I want to talk about a response to this. Have you read this before and thought, I wonder who's talking here? Because sometimes it seems like the man is talking, sometimes it seems like the demon is talking, and it's a little bit difficult to see exactly who's talking. And how, what kind of control does he have of his own body? I don't know exactly, but here's what we do know. Jesus stepped out of the boat, verse 2, and immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. I would tend to think that who's in control of his body at this moment is him, not the demon. Because the demons do not really want to be in the presence of Jesus, but the man does. And so the man is being overcome by evil. He's got this possession here. It's given him strength, but it's making him miserable. And he recognizes that the only way he can be healed is by coming to Jesus. I know that sounds cliche, right? What you need to do in order to have your problems removed is to come to Jesus. 
I want to make sure you hear what I'm saying, and I'm not suggesting that you come down the aisle at the end of the sermon and you give your heart and life to Jesus. We baptize you today. You come up out of the water and all your problems are gone. It's not the way that it works. But the way that it does work is when you come to Jesus and your identity is wrapped up in Him, and He becomes, He's already God, but He becomes your Lord and Savior. You stop chasing these pseudo-gods, these fake, these idols. You stop trying to have your identity in them. You stop pursuing the evil thing, and you start pursuing the good thing. And when your identity is wrapped up in Him, then He begins rooting out these pseudo-gods, these evil, these, 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 uh, these demons, if I can use that word. That's what happens. You come to Jesus. Let me say just a word to you, especially if you're not a believer in Christ. Maybe you're online. Maybe you're in the building this morning. I don't know. Have you thought about this? Um, you, I really think this is true, that even if you don't believe in Jesus, you ought to want to believe in Jesus. I think that's true. And if you don't want to believe in Jesus, what I believe is you haven't really spent enough time understanding who He is. Because when you see who Jesus is and what He does, and the release and the freedom that He brings, you ought to, even if you don't yet believe, you ought to want to believe. Here's the second thing that's true. Not only should you want to believe in Jesus, but it ought to scare you. A little bit. Because what Jesus brings to us is not just punching your ticket, not just walking down the aisle, saying a prayer, getting baptized. It's not just this, hey, I'm going to sign up for this new thing. It's not, hey, I'm going to check the Protestant box on the census questionnaire, or I'm going to identify as a Christian now. When you understand not only who Jesus is, you want to believe in Him, but you also, you're a little bit scared because you understand the kind of claim that He's making. And He is saying that I'm not just a rabbi, a teacher, a good person, a new philosophy, a new religion. I am God, and I am Lord, and I am Savior. And that ought to scare you just a little bit. But ultimately, I hope that Jesus will draw you to Himself and you'll understand that He brings both power and mercy. One more thing. One more thing. Notice this in our text. Verse 6, when He saw Jesus from afar, He ran and fell down before Him. Verse 7, crying out with a loud voice, He said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Now, Notice this. This is very subtle, but I want you to get this. Notice what Satan, he's okay with you believing in the power of God, the power of Jesus. Notice that when he says this in verse 7, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Don't torment me. So his perception of Jesus was, if I come to Jesus, he's going to torment me. It's this perception in the world that you can be holy or you can be happy, but you can't be both. And what God wants to do is, he wants to come into your life and he wants to make you miserable. He wants to take away everything that's fun. He wants to torture you. 
He wants to make your life not all that it could be. Isn't that the, old, the, the oldest lie in the world when uh, serpent came to, to Eve and he said, uh, you know what, uh, the reason God said you can't eat of that forbidden fruit, that fruit is what? He's, ho he's holding something back from you. He, he doesn't want you to have a good life, you know. And so I, I think it's interesting here that he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The only, only thing that Jesus is going to do is he's going to bring into your life this, um, I don't know, this, this kind of separation from all that's good. But what we need to understand is that when you come to Jesus, he brings this holiness, he brings this power. But Jesus goes on in this text and he brings about healing, Right? He doesn't bring about misery. I don't know what your perception of God is, of, of Jesus is. Maybe you've got this perception that, you know, you become a Christian and it's this life of, um, just basically a life where you, if it's, if it's fun, you can't do it. If you used to do it and it brought some sort of, um, some sort of fun to your life, then yeah, yeah, shut the door on that, right? That's what, is that what you think of Jesus? The God's this cosmic killjoy. It doesn't really have your best interests in heart, right? So he came to Jesus and he said, just don't, just don't torture me. And Jesus says, in essence, I'm going to get rid of that thing that's killing you. I'm going to bring about mercy. I'm going to give you release and freedom. And I'm going to give you this life that, that is not being just ravaged by evil and sin. And so verse 13, he gave them permission pigs in the ancient world and the Jewish world certainly were considered the lowest of the low, but I think when he allows these demons to go into the pigs, into the sea, it was this image of release from one, but also the recognition that the evil is still present in the world. I want to close by just asking us all. I know you've got problems. I know we've got issues. You've got some struggles that maybe nobody else knows about. You look out the world and you know this, this thing called evil men that's out there everywhere. What's the solution? We live in a very secular world. We're tempted to say the solution is, you know, this physiological thing, this social thing, this, this, uh, this psychological thing, that, that's going to fix it. Get the right people in office, that'll fix it. Just, you know, read the right book, that'll fix it. Ultimately, what, what Jesus comes to us and says is, the thing that will ultimately fix us, and God works through a variety of means, but ultimately the thing that will fix us is when we come into this relationship, back into a relationship with God that's characterized by peace and harmony. And that's what Jesus wants to bring us today. If you're not a Christian today, maybe you're just on the outside kind of looking in, just kind of kicking the tires, you know. I hope you want to believe in Him. And I hope you understand that His claim over you is absolute but it is liberating because you no longer have to live in fear and you no longer have to live in bondage to this thing in the world that's so evil. If you come to Jesus today and give your heart and life to him, he's promised you his presence and his help. He will walk along beside of you as you face the difficulties of life. Ultimately, he will make all things right. Be baptized into him today. Give Him your heart and your life. The Holy Spirit will live within you, and God will begin His transformative work in your heart and life. It's a beautiful thing. He brings power, and He brings mercy. 
If you're not a Christian today, you can become one. If you need to ask for prayers of the body here, we'll pray for you today. Whatever's going on, we'll pray for you. If you need to come, I hope you'll come. Come forward now. Let's stand. Let's sing this song. Why keep Jesus waiting?